Well, as uh, Shelby mentioned, I'm going through my second cold this season, and so I will do my best to uh, project, but if I sound a little nasally, that is that is why. And um, But uh, hopefully, Phil, can you hear me at the back? Yeah, I hear you. Okay, that's good. We'll just, we'll do our best this morning. Would you rise out of reverence for God's word as we read together the third chapter of the book of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 19. Once again, that's Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder's as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the fearsome word of the living God. You may be seated. Let us worship the Lord together through the study of his word. This morning, as we study the third chapter of the book of Hebrews, let us begin by asking a question. Are you a Christian? Think about that for a moment. 
Are you actually a Christian? Anybody can claim to be a Christian. That's easy. You can claim to be a Christian. You can think that you're a Christian. But it can happen that in reality you're not actually a biblical Christian. The Lord Jesus himself said that many will say to him on that last day, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter into his kingdom, for he will say to them, I never knew you. That's in Matthew chapter 7. So are you a Christian? Are you part of the family of God? Are you going to enter into God's heavenly rest? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? And you know what? You can even be a pastor and not be a Christian. Being a pastor doesn't guarantee that you go to heaven. You can be a pastor and not be a true Christian. The famous preacher, John Wesley, he had been a pastor for several years before he was converted through genuine repentance and faith. I even heard a story about a Baptist pastor who was the son of a pastor, and he was converted in the pulpit while he himself was preaching a sermon. So being a pastor doesn't protect you either. So what does this mean? This, mean, this means that you may appear to have on, on the outside like you've got it all together. But of course, God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks right into your heart. And Hebrews chapter 3 that we just read together, it challenges all of us to examine our own hearts to make sure that indeed we are part of the family of God. And so let's go to the holy text together in order to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 1 together. Verse 1 is the foundation verse for the chapter, for it anchors everything that comes after it. Hebrews addresses his hearers as holy brothers and sisters, of course. He says, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. And let's keep this in mind. He's addressing fellow Christians. And Hebrews addresses us Christians as holy people, he says, set apart to God, who share together in a heavenly calling. And here in this verse, we see a command. It says, consider. Consider who? Consider Jesus. You know what? This is chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews. But this is only the second time that Hebrews has referred to the name of Jesus. And the NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And that conveys the idea nicely here. Hebrews is commanding us to hold Jesus firmly in our minds. To focus our attention on him. To concentrate on him. That is what we are called to do as we are holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Fix your thoughts 
on Jesus. Consider him. And later on in the book of Hebrews, we will hear a very similar command to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That will come in Hebrews chapter 12. And that is the essence of the Christian faith, fixing our thoughts, that's our minds, and our eyes on Jesus Christ. He is the one who should fill our hearts, our minds, and our vision. But why should we fix our minds on Jesus? Hebrews says here, because he is the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. And each of these two descriptions is important. Apostle and high priest. The word apostle simply means one who is sent. A sent one. And so God is the one who sent his son into the world. Therefore Jesus is a sent one. He is an apostle. But by, by calling him an apostle, Hebrews is reminding us of chapter 1. Remember what we learned in chapter 1? That the Son is divine. If Jesus is a sent one, if he is an apostle sent from God out of heaven, then that must be that Christ is divine. So that echoes chapter 1. But then the other one, high priest, the meaning of high priest is that Jesus is the great representative of his fellow humans. And that points us back to chapter 2, that the Son is human. So apostle and high priest are both sides of Christ's person, referring to his divine nature, the apostle sent from God, and his human nature, the high priest, who is a human representative. Therefore, as believers, we confess both the divine nature of Jesus Christ and his human nature. We confess that he is apostle and high priest. And then if we look at verse 2, it sets up a comparison here. A comparison between the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithfulness of Moses. And so Hebrews says both were faithful men who obeyed God's will and carried out his purposes. And they were faithful in that. Jesus carried out the mission and plan of the Father in living a perfect life and going to the cross. Moses also com completed and accomplished the mission and plan of God that he commissioned for him to carry out in leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and delivering to them the law and the covenant from the top of Mount Sinai. So both Jesus and Moses were faithful to God. But listen again to verse 3 then. Because here, here's where things separate. It says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So now Hebrews is saying that even though both Jesus and Moses were faithful, they are not in the same category. For Jesus is categorically superior to Moses. And if you remember at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, we saw that the Son of God is categorically superior to the prophets. 
And then in chapters 1 and 2, we saw how the Son is categorically superior to the angels, for he is divine. And now, in chapter 3, we see that Jesus is categorically superior to Moses. For here, Hebrews uses the analogy of a builder and a house. Or we could think of it maybe as a, an architect, designer, and the building that he designs. And if we think about this for a moment, which one gets more glory? The human who designed uh, and built the house or the house itself? Well, we might ooh and ah at the beautiful building, but really it's the builder, it's the architect, it's the designer who gets the credit for it, who gets the fame, and who gets the glory. And so we see with this analogy that the builder is categorically superior to the building that he has designed and built. And in the same way, Jesus is categorically superior to Moses, Hebrews is saying here. But why is this important? Why is Hebrews making this point about Moses? We have to remember that, that who Hebrews is writing to. Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians. He is writing to Jewish Christians, some of whom are tempted to go back to Judaism and give up on Jesus. And Moses was the superstar of Judaism. And so in reality, these Jewish Christians who are waffling and doubting, they're thinking about going back to Moses. In Judaism at that time, even up to the Judaism of today, Moses is the greatest man who has ever lived, the wisest man, the most righteous man. He is the greatest prophet, the greatest judge, and the greatest legislator. In fact, to help us understand how highly the Jews regarded Moses, especially in that day, we actually have to think about how highly Muslims regard Muhammad today. And I'm sure that you're very well aware from the news that if you say anything negative about Muhammad, that will make Muslims extremely angry at the drop of a hat. We have to understand that's the same way that Jews, especially in that day, that's the exact same way they felt about Moses. That is how high, how exalted Moses was in Judaism. So then think about what Hebrews is saying right here. When Hebrews is saying that Jesus is not just superior to Moses, but categorically superior to Moses, that's actually an amazing statement. Hebrews is saying to the Jewish Christians who are considering or thinking about going back to Judaism, back to Moses, it's like he's saying, you guys want to go back to Moses? You don't understand what, what you're leaving in wanting to go back to Moses and leave Jesus. Because actually you're wanting to leave the superior for the inferior, the greater for the lesser, the builder for the building. You're wanting to leave the son for the servant. 
And Hebrews finishes off the comparison between Jesus and Moses in verses 5 and 6, where once again he contrasts Moses as a servant versus Jesus as a son. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's household, whereas Jesus is, a faith, is faithful as a son over that household of God. And as we've said before, this is how we know that Jesus is not just greater than Moses in terms of degrees, but actually that he is categorically superior. Because the eldest son in a household is also the heir of the whole estate. He's not just greater than a servant in terms of degrees, but he is in a whole different category altogether. But also take note of the two prepositions being used here. In verse 5, it says that Moses was a servant in God's household. And in verse 6, it says that Christ is the son who is over God's household. And that shows a difference there, too. Hebrews is saying here that in the household of God, it is Moses the servant who serves Jesus the son. Because the Son is over everyone in the household of God. And so let's take a moment and think about that. An application to ourselves today. How can we take what Hebrews is saying and apply it to us today? Well, some of these Jewish Christians are tempted to go backwards, not forwards. They're tempted to go back towards Judaism. And Hebrews is warning them here that if they do that, they will be going from the superior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the inferior, Moses, who is just a faithful servant. And in our daily lives, there may come times of weakness when we want to give up. Because you know what? The Christian life is really hard. Pursuing holiness is not easy. Struggling with the flesh is difficult. Putting sin to death is tough. Growing in Christ is challenging. And some days it may just seem easier just to go back to our old ways of life. Just to throw up our hands and say, I give up. I've had enough of this Jesus stuff. But in the same way, the message that Hebrews is saying to them is applicable to us. Whatever we would be returning to, we are leaving the superior to go back to the inferior. We are leaving Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for something that is far, far, far beneath Him. But even more seriously, we would be choosing to leave the friendship of Jesus Christ to become His enemy once again. And believe you me, you do not want to be an enemy of Jesus Christ. On the day of judgment, that will be the worst decision you've ever made. And so maybe we're not to the point of being tempted to leave the Christian faith. Maybe we're not there yet, or to turn our backs on Jesus. Maybe we still want to remain Christians, but we just want to be weary Christians. Worn out Christians. Or self-indulgent Christians, or lazy Christians, or apathetic Christians who have lost the will to fight. Where we want to keep one foot in with Jesus, but we sort of want to go back to some of those old habits. 
We want to have both ways. We want to give in to some of those old patterns of behavior. We want to indulge in some of those old sins. But the message is just the same. Don't fall back into inferior things. Don't turn back even only halfway to the things that are far less than the glory of the Son of God. And that's why Hebrews had said at the beginning, fix your minds on Jesus Christ. The third chapter of Hebrews that we're looking at this morning has two sections. Verses 1 to 6 that we've been looking at, and verses 7 to 19. And between these two sections, there's a, there's a hinge verse that connects them together. And that hinge verse is verse 6. Specifically the second half of the verse, if you look with me there. Verse 6b. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Hebrews has been talking about the household of God. That is the family of God. Household, family, is basically the same thing. Moses was a faithful servant in the household family of God, whereas Jesus is the faithful son who is over the household family of God. But now Hebrews uh, takes his attention, he turns it to us and he says, you make up the household family of God. But let's take note of this little word here, if. If we hold fast, if we cling to, if we persevere, if we hang in there, if we continue and persist and endure, how do you know? How do you know if you're part of the family of God? You know it when you have crossed the finish line and you have finished the race. You've hung in there. You've held on like there's no tomorrow. You've clung to that rock. You've white-knuckled it with a death grip. You've hung on for dear life. And you could say, well, well, that's at the end. That's at the finish line. I want to know now. How can I be assured in the present, at the present time, that I'm part of the family of God right now? Well, you can know right now if you're hanging in there. If you're holding on like there's no tomorrow. If you're clinging to that rock. If you're white-knuckling it with a death grip. If you're hanging on for dear life. What are we holding fast to? To what are we hanging on for dear life? It's that word hope. And as I always say, when we come to this word, we should capitalize it in our Bibles. If you don't mind writing in your Bibles, I always say, when you come to the word hope, give it a capital H. Because it is a capital H hope. It is the hope of salvation. It is not wishful thinking, but it rather it is the certain expectation of salvation from the righteous wrathful judgment of God on the day of judgment. It is the sure anticipation of a not guilty verdict based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that then ushers us into the eternal and holy presence of God. That is our hope. shouldn't have a small H, in my opinion. should have a big H. That's what we're confident in. 
That is what we boast in, it says here. That's what we glory in. That's what we rejoice in. It's like we're strutting around like a peacock, all confident and boastful, not because of anything that we can point to in ourselves. We don't deserve a single thing. But our confidence, our boasting, is built upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. And our boasting crows for his glory and his grace. And so the rest of chapter 3, the second point, or the second section, is going to push hard into this point. Make sure, make sure that you are part of the household family of God. Verses 7 to 11, Hebrews again quotes from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. This time is taken from Psalm chapter 95. And take note how Hebrews mentions the Holy Spirit here. How the Holy Spirit is not a force or a divine power. He is a person who speaks. He speaks the word of God into being. And just as a side note, take note in how in verses 6 and 7, all three persons of the triune God are seen here in their respective roles. In verse 6, the Father is the one who has the household. The son is over the father's household as the faithful high priest. And now in verse 7, the Holy Spirit is the one speaking the words of God in Scripture. All three members of the triune God working together. And what does the Holy Spirit declare? So looking at verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the book of Psalms here, Psalm 95, is talking about the Israelites whom Moses led out of Egypt the many wonders of God. But it is that very same group of Israelites who witnessed the mighty and outstretched arm of God. It was that group who complained over and over again, putting God to the test, wanting to go back to Egypt. And they were even the same ones who feared to go into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb, they said, yes, let's do it. Come on, let's take the land. The other ten spies says, no, we can't do it. And all the people followed the ten other spies. They didn't want to go in to the promised land. They wanted to go back to Egypt because they did not trust in God. And therefore God judged that they would not be permitted to enter into the promised land, but that that entire generation would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every single last one of them died. It would be their children who would get to enter into the promised land. Now look at verse 9 where this is confirmed. It says, that generation saw God's works for 40 years, but at the same time they were putting him to the test for all those 40 years. When you're putting God to the test, you're not obeying him or trusting him by faith. 
Putting to the test is actually the opposite of what faith actually is. Then verses 10 to 11, here is the response, God's response to this unbelieving disobedience. It says he is provoked to anger with them. And he makes three declarations. First he says, or let's look at these three statements. The first one he says, they always go astray in their heart. And that's, that's important. Because it's not just outward disobedience. God looks into their hearts and he knows what the root problem is. It's a heart issue. It's not like their hearts are right with God, but their outward actions are bad. No, God says in their hearts they go astray. That's the first statement he makes. Second statement he says, they have not known my ways. And this is referring to the mind now, to something that they don't know. They have not known God's ways. They do not walk in his ways because they have not known his ways. To know God's ways is to seek after him and to know his heart and to love him and worship him. And so God is declaring that these Israelites who have seen with their very own eyes all of his mighty works, and yet they're still putting him to the test, but that they do not do any of these things. They don't seek after him. They don't seek to know his heart. They don't seek to love him. They don't seek to worship him in truth. And thirdly, the third statement says that in God's righteous anger, he swears an oath. And you know what? When God himself swears an oath, it's absolutely unbreakable. And here is one of those places in Scripture where the English translation does not do justice to the emotional forcefulness of what is being conveyed in the Greek. I mean, so this is one of those places in, in Scripture that, that the emotional force is much stronger in the Greek than, than we can get in our, in our English translations. So if I were to paraphrase what, what the oath of God is here, it would be like this. Over my dead body shall they enter my rest. That's what God's saying here. It's like God himself is saying, they shall absolutely never, ever, ever come into my rest. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. They'll have to pry it from my cold, dead fingers and step over my corpse before they will enter into my rest. That's how emphatic God is being here when he swears this oath. But what is God's rest anyway? Well, at that time it referred to the promised land of Canaan. But it also has a deeper sense. And in a deeper sense, it refers to God's heavenly rest, where there's perfect joy and perfect peace in his holy presence. That's what God is, is saying. Over my dead body shall they ever come in to my heavenly presence. So the Holy Spirit in Psalm 95 is describing a people who sin from the heart, who neither love God nor know Him, and who will absolutely not enter into His rest. And in verse 12, in verse 12, Hebrews now applies that to us. And he says, Take care, brothers, and sisters, of course, take care, brothers, lest there be 
in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is the warning here. And let us make sure that we are not like those Israelites with unbelieving hearts who did not know God's ways and so they did not enter into his rest. Let us examine our hearts and our minds. Have I truly put my trust and faith in God? Have I known God and his ways and am I walking in them? Or like these Israelites, do I actually have an evil, unbelieving heart that is leading me away from the living God? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to get together and exhort and encourage and admonish and warn one another. We're all running in this race together. And if one falls down, we're to try and help them up so that we may all reach the finish line together. And sin is so deceitful. Where it offers, it, it hands out happiness and fun and fulfillment and satisfaction. But over time, instead, it leads to more and more hardening against God. When we begin to look away from Jesus Christ, looking back over our shoulder to our old life, where we came from, to that old life of sin and self-love, and as that sinful desire begins to grow, so can a hardness develop over time that pushes us farther and farther from Christ. Our love for him then grows cold. He becomes small in our eyes. But when we as a church come together and we are constantly exhorting one another, pointing one another to Christ, magnifying and glorifying him together, reminding each other to, to fix our minds on Jesus, then we are helping one another to hold fast to him to the very end. And so verse 14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed... We hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Remember? That's what Hebrews said back in verse 6. How do you know that you're part of the family of God? How do you know that you have come to share in Christ? If you hold fast to your original confidence firm to the end. If you finish that race, you will only do this by the strength and grace that God provides. We persevere to the end by the sovereign preservation of God. We persevere to the end by the sovereign preservation of God. What Hebrews is saying here is that one of the marks or evidences of genuine faith is that it perseveres to the end. One of the marks or evidences of a false faith is that it falls away after a time. He is not talking about someone with a genuine and real faith that then falls away and loses his or, his or her salvation. He's not talking about that here. Instead, what he is saying is that falling away actually reveals a false faith. Whenever you hear about someone falling away or about someone who loses their faith, 
It only brings to light that they never had a genuine faith to begin with, because real faith perseveres. And this is important to understand, especially when we come to chapter 6 of Hebrews. A few people have already walked up to me and said, I'm waiting for Hebrews chapter 6, Pastor. Well, it's coming soon. But in order to understand Hebrews chapter 6 properly, we must first make sure that we understand chapter 3 properly. And as the chapter ends, Hebrews is pointing at the Israelites who were prevented from entering the promised land. And they all died in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years. Verse 16 shows us what benefits these Israelites had, what advantages they enjoyed. They had heard the voice of God. They had been led out of Egypt by Moses. And so outwardly, outwardly, it looked like they had faith. It looked like they were on the right track. But then look at how Hebrews describes them. Verse 16 says, they rebelled. Verse 17a says, they provoked God for 40 years. Verse 17b says, they sinned. Verse 18, they were disobedient. Verse 19, they didn't believe. And so their true heart was revealed. From the outside, it looked like they had everything put together. But on the inside, they had no real faith to speak of. It is not as though the Israelites started with genuine faith and then lost their faith. No, that's not what's going on here. No, they never had true faith to begin with. And their hardened, rebellious, disobedient, sinful actions revealed this. And that is why their bodies fell in the sand so that they could not enter into the promised land, into God's rest. And so, verse 19 ends as the summary of everything else. They were unable to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. Because in the end, they did not possess true faith in God. And that is the application that Hebrews has for us. True and genuine faith in Jesus Christ cannot be lost. A true believer in him cannot fall away. It perseveres right to the very end, right to the finish line. It is true faith that brings us into God's rest as he preserves us by his grace. So make sure that your faith in Jesus is true faith and not a false faith. Make sure that your faith is one that hangs in there and endures and clings and, and holds on tight to Jesus. Otherwise, eventually a false faith will be exposed for what it is. Counterfeit. And you will not enter into God's rest, just like those Israelites failed to enter into the promised land. God knows your heart. You cannot pull the wool over his eyes. You can't pull a fast one on him. You can't trick him. You can't fool him. You can't deceive him. And so as it says in Galatians chapter 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. For the one who sows in the spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, 
For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So brothers and sisters, let us not give up. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we want to enter into your rest. And so Father, let us and help us to examine our own hearts to make sure we are not like those Israelites who died in the desert because of their disbelief and because of their hardened hearts and their rebellion and putting you to the test and all their sin. Father, help us to examine our hearts, to realize that a true and genuine faith is a faith that hangs in there to the bitter end. It's a faith that endures. And Father, maybe this morning we're not considering leaving Jesus and leaving Christianity and the Christian faith. But maybe we, we want to have it a little bit both ways, returning to old habits and, and old patterns of sin. Father, convict us this morning to help us to fix our thoughts and our minds on Jesus Christ. So that when we focus on his majesty and his glory and his faithfulness as our great apostle and high priest, then all these other things will be eclipsed and they will fade away in dimness because of his majesty. That we would turn fully to him once again in true and genuine faith, hanging in there to the very end. So Father, we pray that by your grace, you would grant us the gift of such a faith that perseveres. Because we know we can only make it to the finish line if you preserve us to the very end. So, Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the warning of Hebrews. For, Father, very often in our lives, we need to be shaken up. We need to be provoked. We need to be convicted so that we'll get back to business of serving the Lord and worshiping him. And so, Father, we pray that you would bring conviction into our hearts so that Jesus truly would be the be-all, end-all in our lives. It's in his precious name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.